following audio is from Crossroads Church in West Ossipee, New Hampshire. For more information about Crossroads Church, you can go to www.crossroadsossipee.com. Good morning again. Turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 3. Um, that's page 858 in the Pew Bibles, if that's helpful to you. This morning, we're going to take a look at the remarkable character, John the Baptist. He had a remarkable birth, which we looked at in Luke chapter 1. He lived a remarkable lifestyle. He got a remarkable endorsement from Jesus himself, and he preached a remarkable message. Now, if that sounds to you like a setup for a four-point message, you're wrong. Let's look at our text. Luke chapter 3, starting at verse 1. In the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, being governor of Judea, and Herod, being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iteria and Trachonitis, and Licinius, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priest of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He therefore, he said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your word. We thank you for preserving it for us. Not just for us to read and study, but for it to study us and to change us. So, Lord, we ask by the power of your Holy Spirit that we would be made different as a result of our time together in your word. We know that that will be your work, not mine. We pray, Father, now that your spirit would speak and you would be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. So you may or may not remember from early in our study on the Gospel of Luke, what Luke's intent was in writing this gospel account. Uh, we talked about it when we began to study back in chapter 1, that Luke's intent was to give Theophilus certainty about the things that he had been taught about the life and ministry of Jesus. And he did so by collecting eye, um, eyewitness accounts and, and by writing this orderly account. Out for him and therefore to us. 
And the first few verses uh, of chapter 3 give a great example of some of the details that Luke researched in order to set the historical context of the timing of the ministry of John the Baptist and of uh, as well as the ministry of Jesus himself. He says, In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Italy and Trachonitis, and Licinius, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, then the word of God came to John in the wilderness. Now, what might be um, what, what, what might not be as obvious is that Luke is also pointing out in these, in this list of um, uh, jerks, um, he's pointing out fulfillment of prophecy um, it, uh, concerning the coming of Messiah. And the prophecy is from Genesis 49, uh, verse 10, where it says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So, that's, that's kind of the way prophecy works. What, what was that again? Um, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. The ruler's staff shall not, uh, the ruler's staff from between his feet. So the scepter is a symbol of rule, of uh, the rule of a king. So the line of David, right, comes from the tribe of Judah, uh, David the king. Well, here we have a bunch of Roman rulers who are ruling in Israel. Okay, the scepter, the ruling uh, the symbol of the rule of the king had certainly departed from Judah because there was no king in Israel at that time. Um, it had been taken by the Romans and placed in the hands of the governors and tetrarchs and these bunch of jerks that they appointed uh, to rule. I say that because none of these were nice people, uh, not just being impolite. Um, these were these were terrible, terrible men. Um, it also showed, uh, and that's just the Roman piece, not that the, uh, the high priests that are mentioned here are any better. Uh, they were also not nice men. Um, that showed just how corrupted the nation of Israel had become um, because they had two high priests instead of one. Uh, now, that may not seem like a big deal to you. It's a big job, I guess, but um, the the law instructed that there be one high priest, uh, but instead there was two. And it's the, the reason being is that the Romans had actually deposed the first high priest, Annas, and appointed his son-in-law, Caiaphas. Now, if you've read the gospel accounts, these names will sound familiar to you because Jesus was brought bound before Annas, tried, and then brought to Caiaphas, tried and then sent to the Romans and was crucified. Okay, so these guys, not our friends, okay? Um, that's, uh, so the Romans are not supposed to be involved in who gets to appoint the high priest. That's not their job, um, but they got involved anyway. And 
and the nation of Israel didn't really have a choice but to go along with it. So the the whole system is messed up. It's all corrupted. Uh, Not great. So that's just a a little trivia you can impress your friends with. Um, All of that to say that God is always, always, always at work. I've heard that before. Right? He is fulfilling prophecy even in what seems to be kind of the most random stuff. God is still at work um, moving the pieces around on the chessboard to get, where, um, to get things to where they need to be. And also from all of those details, we learn uh, that John the Baptist was about 30 years old when he began his public ministry. And that was right around the year 29 A.D., which kind of makes our calendar make sense, um, right? A.D., Aningo Domine, or Anio Domine, the year of our Lord, not uh, C.E., Common Era, right? There is a defining moment between Common Era and before Common Era. Guess what it is? It's Jesus, Okay. There have been a great number of remarkable preachers throughout history, but I think John the Baptist is one of my favorites. Um, he had a remarkable birth story, which we covered in Luke chapter 1, right? Angels uh, show up and tell Zechariah, you're going to have a son and all this stuff, and you're going to name him John. And, and Zechariah's like, are you kidding? The angel says, No and makes him mute until John is born, and then he names him John and gets his voice back. Love that story. Um, John also lived a remarkable lifestyle, right? He lived out in the wilderness, um, dressing in a camel's hair cloak and wearing a big leather belt, like, like Elijah did. If you, if you read the accounts of Elijah the prophet, he dressed the same way. Camel's hair, cloak, leather belt, and he, and he ate bugs. Right? Locusts, locusts and wild honey. Right? When, when, it feels like nowadays all that we're missing to go wrong is we're just waiting for the locusts. Right? Another, another curse coming. But locusts are not grasshoppers. Right? They look like grasshoppers, which are this big. Locusts are this big. Right? So that's like a hot dog sized bug. Um, <laughs> Um, yeah, <laughs> there's a great there's uh, just as an aside, if you're if you're interested in learning about the diet of locusts, there's a great movie called Hidalgo uh, that takes place. It's an Arabian horse race through the desert and the locusts show up um, and they're a great gift because he was going to starve to death in the in the desert until all the locusts came and had like. Hot dog-sized bugs to eat. So anyway, gross. Um, yeah, this is feeling really spiritual at this moment. Um, anyway, John lived a remarkable lifestyle. He didn't just like move out to the wilderness when he turned 30 and start preaching there. He moved out to the wilderness early and lived out there for a long time, um, eating locusts and wild honey. And he got a remarkable endorsement from Jesus himself uh, in Matthew chapter 11. Jesus said, among those born of women, no, greater, no one greater has arisen than John the Baptist. 
right? If that's not a big thumbs up for your, you know, your career, I don't know what is, right? Among those born of women, no one greater has arisen than John the Baptist. That's the Messiah himself saying that. And John was also a remarkable preacher. Crowds came from all of Judea and Jerusalem to the Jordan River to hear him preach and be baptized by him. Um, this is this is like you couldn't put out a Facebook invitation, say, come hear this guy. And word of mouth got around and everybody wanted to hear John the Baptist. And people came from far and wide to hear this camel hair wearing nut job preach in the wilderness. Right. And he also had a remarkable calling. As it says in verse four, he is the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Uh, John the Baptist and his ministry had been prophesied about hundreds of years beforehand. Right. Luke is quoting Isaiah, which was written 700 years before Jesus was born. Okay, 700 years before John was born. These are remarkable things. His birth story, his lifestyle, his popularity as a preacher, uh, his calling, remarkable. Not my four points, not why John the Baptist is my favorite preacher. What I find the most remarkable about John the Baptist and why he is among my favorite preachers is he preached a one-point sermon. One, repent. For the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, because Messiah is coming. Repent. Get ready. I like that. You can remember that. What are all those remarkables? I don't know. Repent. One. The kingdom of God is at hand. And verses 1 and 2 lay out the timing of a very important moment for John the Baptist. When all these guys are ruling Judea and all these guys are serving as high priests and blah, blah, blah. The word of God came to John the Baptist, son of Zechariah in the wilderness. Now, why do we call him John the Baptist? It's not because he's not John the Methodist. Um, it's because our, our translators don't use the correct and most accurate English word um, for him, they, they say Baptist. What they really mean is John the Dipper. Or maybe John the Dunker. Because that's what the Greek word means. Baptizo means to dip, to dunk, to submerge. right? But John the Submerger just doesn't roll off the tongue quite the same way. <laughs> the word of God came to John the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. And it's the word of God that gives John purpose. It's what gives John's voice significance as one crying in the wilderness. It's the word of God that gave John his message, that has gave him his one-point sermon. As it says in Matthew chapter 3, verse 2, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John the Dunker, God's man with God's word, at God's time and in God's place. 
In fact, John the Baptist did pretty much the opposite of what successful preachers say you have to do in order to be a successful preacher. Right? Lots of books written about this. Wear a nice suit. Build a nice big building with plenty of parking and a gym. And build it near the highway so everybody can see your sign and your building and your impressive campus. Craft an inspiring message with lots of cool graphics and a swinging band. That's how you become a successful preacher. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> Let's look at the sub points of John's one point sermon and see just how far he veered off that path. He said, verse 7, He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Now, I can say that all the books on preaching don't tell you to start your sermons like this. Right? Calling off those who came to hear you speak a bunch of snakes. I started off by calling everybody a bunch of jerks. Just, I, I learned that from John the Baptist, my, uh, one of my heroes. The picture John paints here is a bunch of snakes slithering out of a field that has been set on fire. Right? The grass is burning and here they come. Right? And that's exactly what was happening. The field, their spiritual existence was on fire and they were fleeing and where were they going but to John the Baptist now he's not addressing everybody that comes when he says you brood of vipers he's speaking specifically to the religious leaders right the Pharisees and the Sadducees had come out to hear him and not because they were interested in his message they were looking for ways to cut him down and shut him up. Not everybody that came to hear him was all that interested in his one-point sermon. But by working backwards, uh, here in verse 7, we can see one of John's subpoints in his message is that there is wrath coming and you should flee from it. Now, we don't, we don't talk a lot about wrath um, because it's not a comfortable topic. The wrath he mentions is the wrath of God. It's the wrath of God for sin. It's not the wrath of God in the, in the movie-making sense. God has wrath against sin. We live in a day and age that want, where the world wants to redefine sin. Who are you to tell me what's good and what's bad? Who are you to tell me what is sinful? What is sin? Our world wants to redefine it. Our world wants to eliminate the word sin from its collective vocabulary. Don't want to talk about that anymore. That's the world. None of our business. In the church... We have an equal problem. We have made the fatal mistake of shrinking the effects of sin to mere feelings of guilt. When I sin, I feel bad. 
When I sin, I hurt God's feelings. So I apologize to God and I move on. That's not what the Bible says. The truth is, when we sin, the, the Bible's word for it is missing the mark like a, like a bow and arrow. It misses the target. God's target is perfection. When we sin, it, we miss it. Right? We disobey God. He's, we've gone over it a million times. The Ten Commandments, God's definition for sin. Right? God's categories for what sin is. We don't get to change it, and our opinion about it doesn't matter. The truth is, when we sin, we earn God's wrath. God's wrath means destruction, fiery annihilation. Sound good? No. It's terrible. It's horrible. We should avoid it at all costs. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin, what you earn by sinning, is death. That's what our sin deserves. What we earn by sinning is eternal death. And it's such a nice morning. I was. Romans 6.23 goes on to say, The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Our sin earns God's wrath, but God made a way out for us. Free gift. By his grace, through faith in Jesus, we can get out from underneath God's wrath. Well, John's instruction when it comes to avoiding God's wrath is to repent. To repent means to literally turn away, turn 180 degrees this way is the way towards sin, and this way is the way towards God, leaving sin behind. And we don't often talk about that piece when it comes to faith in Jesus. Just believe in Jesus, he pays for all your sins penalties, and you get to go to heaven when you die. But you don't have to change anything while you're here, because you're good, man. John's message still rings true. Repent. Turn away from your sin. Turn away from it. Leave it behind. You don't need it. You don't want it. You already know you don't want its penalties. Repent. For the kingdom of God is at hand. God's second, uh, John's second sub-point in his one-point sermon. I don't think this is fair. It really is a one-point sermon. Just expounding on it, right? It's one, one B, right? <laughs> his, his second sub point is to live like we have turned away from our sin. That's verse eight. John's second sub point. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Well, what does that look like? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. I have a, I have apple trees in my yard and, um, one, one of them is, is a mature apple tree. It's a big, beautiful tree. And when we bought our house five, six years ago, it was an overgrown mess. I mean, and it, it produced apples that were this big. So we, 
we started the work of pruning this tree, and it's taken, after four or five years, it is a shadow of its former bushiness. Uh, it, it actually looks kind of sparse and um, uh, before the tree, before the leaves came out, it looked really kind of sad, like I had done the work <laughs> and it was, it was dead, right? It was gone. Um, well, cutting back all of that unnecessary uh, shoots and sprouts and leaves and branches and, and dead wood and, and diseased pieces, there, there are a bazillion little tiny apples growing on this tree. And that's just kind of a, kind of a poor picture of bearing fruits in keeping with repentance. It doesn't seem natural to cut away all of the stuff that the tree just wants to do. And that tree every year sends up more suckers and every year and cut them all off. But the tree likes the suckers or it wouldn't do it, right? It's not the best for the tree. And you have to cut all those things back. And now, as, as different as that tree looks and potentially dead, it looked like before, it is, it's very fruitful. The bears are going to love it. <laughs> anyway, what comes to my mind beyond that picture in bearing fruits in keeping with repentance is James chapter 2. Verses 14 through 26. James writes, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, Go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, it does not, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe that and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? you see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. True saving faith is faith that is proved by behavior. It bears fruit in keeping with repentance. This is one of the trickiest passages in Scripture, James chapter 2, because faith, uh, I thought we were justified by faith alone in by grace alone, in Christ alone, right? We say that all the time. Is that true? Yes. Is what James says here true? Yes. Because saving faith is not inactive. Saving faith has effects on our lives. It changes the way we live. 
That's what James's point is. That's what John the Baptist's point is. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. What he's saying is, you have faith in, you have faith, live like it. Not just here. Like, this is, this is wonderful. This is my favorite time. And this is the easiest part, right? We all have to leave here. We all have to go back to home, work, and school, family, neighborhoods. We have to take what we do here, there. Donald Miller wrote, What I believe isn't what I say I believe. What I believe is what I do. We get an awful lot of credit and an awful lot of grief from the world by showing up here on Sunday mornings. But this is not it. You're, you're not proving your faith by coming here. I love that you're here. Keep coming. Bring a friend. But this is not it. This can't be it. This is a taste of what's to come. But we need to take this taste to the world and share th- with them the love that Jesus has for us and what we experience here in this family. The church gets a, a bad rap to, because it's all about what you can't do and and you're judgmental, bigot, hypocrites, blah, blah, blah. Well, yes. Okay, so is everybody else, right? What we have here is the love of Jesus, and that makes all the difference. John goes on to say, And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. This is a tough one. This is, this is a hard sub-point. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, they thought and they taught that they had no need of salvation because they were descended from Abraham. You can read about him. He's in the Bible, in Genesis, right? The, the entire nation of Israel is descended from Abraham. And they were counting on that heritage, counting on that lineage to include them in God's kingdom. This heresy is still taught today. Personal, actual, living, fruitful faith in Messiah Jesus is what is required. Now, the parallel to what, what we deal with today is maybe you're not counting on your connection to Abraham. Um, I'm not personally descended from Abraham. I'm not, I don't have a cell of Jewish blood in my body. All right? However, I have a heritage of faith. My mother, my grandmother. And for years I counted on that. And sometimes we do that too, still. I do whatever I want, you know. Yeah, I was born a Christian. That's not how it works. It's not how it works at all. But we still count on these external things. Well, I go to church every Sunday. It's the same thing. What happens if the church building burns down? What do you do then? Right? We still have to have a personal, living, real connection to Jesus. 
And that's that's got to be us. I, you, you can't do it for somebody else. We can't we can't force our kids to believe in Jesus, just like we can't force our parents to believe in Jesus. It, it's the onus is on us to be personally connected with Messiah Jesus. We can't count on someone else's connection to him. There's a song written years ago, and I can't remember the artist. It doesn't matter. You can't keep living on Granny's Angels. It's about time to get one of your own. (laughs) It's funny, but it's true. John the Baptist's message was simple. Messiah is coming. Repent. John's baptism looked forward to the work of Christ, right? All the people that came to him that believed what he said were baptized. And it's not the same baptism that, uh, that believers are baptized in now, right? John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. They turn away from their wicked ways and get baptized as a symbol of that change. That's John's baptism looking ahead to the work of Christ. When uh, that was all about preparation, right? Preparing their hearts to receive Messiah. Now, when believers are baptized now, it's a baptism looking back to the finished work of Jesus. John's work was to prepare people for the arrival of Jesus and trust in him and his work. And our work is to do the same, to tell people of the finished work of Jesus and to help them trust in him. Now, if you've never trusted in Jesus, you've never trusted, if you've never trusted and repented of your sins, I would encourage you to do that even now while, uh, as we pray in closing. And if you, have, uh, if you have trusted in Jesus and you have repented of your sins, but you've never been baptized, uh, you can come talk to me after the service and, and we can do that. Because that's a wonderful celebration of new life in Christ. You don't actually, uh, your sins aren't actually washed away by the water. Um, it's by faith in Jesus, our sins are washed away by his blood. Right? And John's baptism is looking forward to that as a believer's baptism is looking back. Repent, 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 repent. Repent. This is the daily, moment-by-moment life of the Christian. Because we are constantly forgetting. We're constantly turning back and going back and doing the same dumb thing we keep doing. It's so frustrating for me. I'm sure you love it, but I hate it. Right? It just over and over and over again. You just turn back, turn away. Repent, 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 repent. The life of a Christian, the life of a disciple of Jesus Christ is a life of repentance because Messiah is coming. Praise God. Even so, come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for your servant, John, and for his message that you gave to him. We thank you that it was your word that came to him in the wilderness to remind us, to call us to repentance, to turn away from our sin, turn and follow Messiah Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world.
God, we can't do that without your help. We need your Holy Spirit. We need your guidance. We need you to remind us over and over again to continue to turn away from our sin and turn to Jesus, to follow him with our whole hearts, that what we believe would be proved by what we do, what we say, how we act. And we thank you for every opportunity you give us to do that. Lord, we love you, and we thank you. May we prove it by our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would like to participate in the mission of Crossroads Church through financial support, checks can be mailed to Crossroads Church, Post Office Box 576, West Ossipee, New Hampshire, 03890.